Welcome to the Worldwide Podcast. I'm your host, Miles Ernie. I want to tell you a short story which kind of relates to this week's podcast. Um, it's about a spider that's been living on the wing mirror of my car and weaving a web between the window and the, and the wing mirror and somehow managing to stay there in spite of several journeys around the Kent countryside, which you might have expected to, to kind of shake it off. But it's, it's probably because the cars generally use just to sort of potter around country lanes and so on. But the other day I had a slightly longer journey to take and um, I was a bit concerned about this spider. I didn't want to chuck it off because it's kind of made the car its home. So I just kept an eye on it while I was driving along. Um, and sure enough, when I hit a slightly more major road and accelerated to about 40 miles an hour, the spider um, actually kind of got blown loose and was hanging by a thread. I think at that point it was it was actually trying to reweave its web because I'd had to disturb it um, in order to wipe the mist off the off the wing mirror. So it was it was busy trying to do this weaving job, and it got blown off and was hanging by a thread and swinging kind of wildly and violently backwards and forwards. Um, and I, I I pulled the car over because I you know I didn't want it to actually get blown off and and, um, and onto the road. So. I uh, pulled the car over and it, and it wound its web back in and got its way back on the wind mirror and sort of tucked itself into a little niche inside the mirror and was kind of safe and sound for the rest of the journey. But uh, what that made me think of is just the, the, the sheer strength and resilience of that thread. There the spiders just hanging and being blown by very, very considerable forces and, and yet wasn't actually blown off. The, the thread held it. And... It made me think of something in relation to the stories that we tell today um, and with Eva Gunnar, who is our guest from um, Swedish Lapland. And, and as you'll see, Eva's engaged in really important work, reintroducing people to landscapes and showing them her kind of way of being there as, as a way for them to you know, find that, that way for themselves. And I feel like what's kind of happening there is, um, a repair of a relationship which you could kind of use the analogy of, of, a, of a fabric you know that used to exist between people and landscapes I know if you listen to the podcast often you'll have heard me say this kind of thing many times but I think it, it bears repeating you know people used to be so woven in to their land um, through culture and their their own sensory experience their own way of life their own habits and behavior around getting what they needed to 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 live um, daily with that in mind, I, I, I feel there is there is an impetus which is just waiting to happen, whereby there's like a a reconciliation, you know, there's a rebonding, a, a, a re-establishment of these threads of connection. And I do believe the threads are so very very strong. So it's almost as if we are, you know, we are that spider hanging from a thread from the wing mirror of my car. But if you um, just imagine there are the kind of forces involved. And this spider was just swinging backwards and forwards, but the thread wasn't broken. Now, I do think had I not been watching that and, the, and the, perhaps been on a faster road and got up to 70 miles an hour, I think that thread would have been broken. But still, I just want to look at, to take that as a metaphor, the thread that connects us to land, or, you know, you could say the ties that bind, perhaps we could look at it like, like that, um, are so very, very strong. And in spite of all the forces of industrialization and commerce and now the kind of technological things which are disconnecting us from being present to our surroundings or even present to other people, yet that impetus from within us to connect, to bond, to land and, and uh, 
to other organisms, including other people, is so strong, it, it, it cannot be um, utterly severed. And, and even if it were, from within us, there's more where that came from. So these threads that come out of the spider, this incredible fiber, which actually in, in, in reality is, is so strong that people have used that to make bulletproof vests. It's so flexible and so strong. So that if we take that as an analogy for um, the way that we are able, and really, really we must, we can't help ourselves but to, to connect. The kind of work that Eva's doing, it seems to me, is, is a kind of rebonding. It's, it's re-establishing that fabric of culture. And so when, when Eva takes somebody out uh, and introduces them again to their landscape, uh, she's, she's drawing on something which is innate and which so easily comes forth, just like the thread that comes out of that spider to, to weave its web. And at the same time, it's almost like something that, that reaches up to meet and greet us from the land. There is such a uh, inherent tendency to connect within ecology. Uh, and I think we can see that, that the, the um, ecology is in itself a fabric of life. It's wonderful to see that in so many places around the earth today, there are, there are people like Eva standing there in the forest, reintroducing people to a way that we used to be and to the place where we still are. Well, I'll now get on and introduce Eva to you. Okay, it's my great pleasure to welcome Eva Gunnar to the World Wild Podcast. Hello, Eva. Hello. Thank you for being here, or yeah. for me to come to your podcast. That's it. Well, you're, you're very, very welcome. So Eva is a food creator, culture guide, and forager, but I'm going to let her explain in more detail and far better than I can what it is that she does. Eva. Okay. <laughs> and why do I do what I do? Well, uh, since 10 years ago, um, I went for a one-year course in Sami food culture. Um, and it was one of the most revelation thing I've in, done in my life. Mm. And I was, and the Sami are the indigenous people here in the north of Sweden, where I live. Um, I used to be married to a Sami ranger herder for 17 years, and I'm a mother of a Sami son. Uh, but we are happily divorced since a couple of years ago, you can say. But this course and class, I've always loved food. I've always, and I think in this part of the world, world we have so much. Um, pure, wild, the game, the fish, and of course the berries. And for me, um, I know a little bit about plants and so on. But for me, for this class with Greta Hova, was, which was my teacher, and she's, I know she has been to Britain and uh, told about her foraging. She was a, a Sami elder? Um, no, you cannot say that. She was a respected woman, but she was not one of the Sami elder. Um, she was the Sami food ambassador in Sweden for the Sami. So she did a lot of classes and a lot of... Um, good things for uh, revitalizing old traditional Sami food. And uh, the big part in Sami food is, of course, the reindeer and the wild and the game and the fish. But there is also like a whole world um, of traditional plants that have been used. But lots of lots of things like that have been forgotten. So for these last 10 years, I've been sort of exploring and I've been digging and I've been, I think I know more than Gre Greta did now, um, 
about the plants that are usable and are, are forageable and have been traditionally used in this area because that's what my passion is all about. You know, originally I come from Stockholm, which is in the <laughs> center of Sweden, well, the, the capital. And 32 years ago, I moved to the north and uh it was such a big love for me to come to this open landscape, the vast forest, the big mountains and the pure green everywhere. And uh, and so I have been sort of living 20 years in the nature. But then when I sort of got to know the species better and not just counting leaves, but to know the traditions and to know the flavors and to know traditions and why are they called these names and and sometimes you can also find uh, names of uh, old Sami names for places that have to do with foraging. And it's like a puzzle. And I like that. And I like the idea that we can find good, nutritious food, but also bangs of flavor mm. that is sort of a little bit new to people. So what do I do with all this? Yeah. <laughs> that was the question, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean... I wanted first after this school to sort of start producing herbal salts or syrups to just bring the flavors and preserve them and uh, um, give them deliciousness. But I am not a producer. I, I love to talk, as, as you see, <laughs> as you hear. Well, I started to produce, but then I sort of re realized that every time I had a group or um, I got invited to talk, that was my passion. I really want to sort of explain the tastes and the herbs and the berries. I want to give all the people that gave, that gets a really good taste, why is this and what it is and uh, um, how you can make it yourself. So I started to do these taste shows uh, with pictures and then I sing and then I sort of give uh, people the access to the world uh, around us like like the, the forest and the mountains and the meadows and all with lots of delicious flavors. So it was sort of bringing Swedish Lapland to life in more than one sense. And then I started to have guided tours. And even, I mean, we have a long winter. We have seven months of snow. So it's a lot of time where we can't forage. But you can still bring a basket filled with good products, good things, good flavors. And you can go out, even if it's minus 30, you can go out for a short while and just talk about the pine tree and the tradition of harvesting the pine bark, for example, and give the smell of the pine salt and maybe a dip sauce with pine oil and pine salt to some crevice. So um, you can sort of bring nature alive and uh, it's sort of one more aspect of bringing the local nature and culture to life. So that's what I do. I have my guided tours. I have my taste shows. Um, I bring people home to uh, cook a little bit with me or to just look at all my hundreds of tins of jars of dried and uh, um, preserved flavors and in all my freezers you know you have to have several freezers here uh, and uh, just to have a glimpse of what Swedish Lapland tastes like and what it looks like and what what you can find around here and then I also do classes and courses so now I am the teacher instead of Greta uh, I have become uh, in a lot of Sami contexts in different projects I have become the teacher um, 
Well, she sadly passed away a couple of years ago. So I'm I'm happy to sort of go through with what she was beginning to, to learn. But I do it in my way. I do it in both traditions, but also a little bit experimental way. Yeah, I do think it's a very special part of where we are now is that we we um we can access all of those traditions mm. at the same time we have a lot of tools to um enable us to innovate you know in terms of it's a very creative time in the whole world of food. Yeah. what chefs are doing in 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 kitchens all across the world it's like you can have the best of both worlds in a way isn't it you can have that yeah i don't think you need to complicate things but i think um uh, the ways of sort of adding salt to a herb or adding sugar or honey or adding alcohol or adding fat, that are sort of four different ways of preserving a flavor and you get totally different flavors. Mm. And you can uh, make them from the root or from the leaves or from the flowers. And um, I was in a project about aromas for, for a year, which also was very, uh, very interesting of just the difference if you chop a dandelion or if you have it whole in alcohol you will have two different flavors <laughs> you know so it's all chemistry and it's a little bit complicated which i find uh, maybe too complicated sometimes but i like the fact that for example uh, making syrup of you know, let's say the dandelion syrup which is my true favorite from the yellow dandelion flowers if you sort of boil it and it gets golden uh, you get one flavor but if you boil it a little bit more then the sugar will start to caramelize a little bit and you get another great flavor so uh, I'm, I'm i'm not a fan in recipes because i want to sort of try different ways and uh, you, you get different results all the time so yeah. i think the inspiration of sort of uh, go out in nature and not be afraid of what you see, but to start maybe finding some some plants that you will start to recognize. Uh, and then you can sort of try maybe two or three different ways of using that special herb. Uh, and then next year you can maybe try to find another herb. You don't need to take all 25, 45, 50 plants in one in one time, but you can start to have have a small relationship with each plant and you start to look at nature in a different way. And I think you, you begin to experience the, the place where you are in a different way, don't you? That, that suddenly these things are like familiar faces in the landscape. Um, you know, we, That's so beautiful. Yeah, well, I, I say that it's not—it's not my inspiration to say that. My good friend Monica Wild, she—I um, can't remember whether she mentioned it when we did a podcast the other week, but in conversation, she she mentioned um, a situation where they had kids from the inner city out into a rural place in the countryside, and to begin with, they found it very threatening—the unfamiliarity of the place. They were—they were, they were actually—they were frightened and very edgy. But they did some work with some plants, and um, it was just simple things. Nettles, nettles was one. I can't remember what the others were. But then they came out for a second session, and it wasn't even in the same place. It was in another rural place. Mm. These kids saw the nettles and saw the other plants that they recognized, and, and she could see them visibly relax, unwind, yeah. and, and look like they're now in a safe space. And the way she put it was it was like seeing that they had seen a familiar face, yeah, made yeah. them feel that this is this is an okay place to be. I'm all right because there's good old metals here. 
I feel all right now. And and it's a little bit frightening that a lot of people have come so far from nature that it feels threatening. And I think that is the thing for men, many people. I mean, I I was a city girl, and I I loved the green. I loved the forest, but it was all green for me. It was a forest or a mountain, and and. Uh, of course, you know, a couple of trees and things like that. And in the north, we have a little bit different nature than, than around Stockholm. But the thing is that you, yeah, it becomes so, it's it's like the best relationship you have in your life. Because you can follow it each year and you can sort of, oh, this year there's a lot of berries on these trees, for example. And, and then, you know, it was a very hot summer last summer. So probably they want to produce as much as possible to, to survive. So you get an understanding. And uh, I think people who... who who see nature and the parts of nature uh, and see some how it connects, they don't want to harm nature. And I think here in, in the north of Sweden, uh, we have a lot of forestry and we have some mining and some all these big heavy industries and they don't see the landscape they just see the money and so i think it's very important the more people who understand and feel a relationship to nature the more people will work to 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 find other kinds of work in these areas instead of just chopping down the trees and digging big holes yeah yeah i mean it's like uh, it reminds me of a line from a captain beefheart song he says um you couldn't have done this if you knew what you were doing, you know, and it seems that, mm. and there's another thing that says you can't see the wood for the trees, you know, like the, these guys are coming there and all they're seeing is this big extractive industry, whether it's wood or, 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 or mining. Yeah. But it's amazing that you can see and not see, you know, you can, you can be standing there looking at that and not see that. And yeah. it's like you said with the, uh, when you came and you first saw, you just saw green. Yeah. I really like that because... I often point this out to people when they when they come on my foraging walks that you know all you're seeing is green now and it's like you are illiterate and by the end of this uh, walk I'm going to have taught you your few basic ABCs of how to speak and read green. That's perfect. Oh, I love that. Yeah, usually we just go out of my house. That I have a small, small low lawn. It's still. I I hate no I don't say I hate gardening but I'm not a gardener I I uh, I don't think I have the patience for it but I love the fact that I have wild garden all over <laughs> the place where I can go but I have a small lord and just to go there and and look at the clover the dandelions we have alpine bistort we have yarrow uh, I have sorrel I have all these things I have some little bit of nettles in my lawn too. What do you do with alpine bistort? Ah, um, I I use the sort of seeds. Uh, they are fresh. When they're fresh, they really is, taste like hazelnut. <laughs> and they are one of the sort of 14 survival plants that we should know of here in Sweden because it has so high um, produce of uh, carbohydrates. So you can also use the, the root. It's quite a small plant and the roots are quite small, but there usually are a lot of them where, where they grow. Uh, but I, I pick the small seeds and I dry them 
And then I use them like a very flavorsome uh, crisp, like crispy seeds. Um, and they then taste a little bit like the, the hazelnutty part disappears and then you have sort of a horseradish taste. So a little peppery root vegetable taste that you can make maybe a fresh cheese ball and um, turn them around in the seeds or just sprinkled on salads. Or I like to sprinkle them on my gach with a special sami bread with some uh, cured salmon and some sorrel sauce. And then I have this crispy seeds on top. So I, I for me, alpine beast is a very small plant. And uh, you don't see it if you don't know it. Uh, so you really have to turn your eyes to see them. But the leaves are also edible, so, and they grow quite a lot in this area. So it, it's a plant that it's fun to, to reveal to people that, look, it's, it's everywhere here, and you've never thought about it. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to go and look into that, because the, we've, we've got plants which are in the genus uh, Persicaria here, Mm-hmm. And these persicaria ones do produce a lot of seeds. There's, there's, there's one called, we call it red shank, and the other one is pale persicaria. But apparently the Vikings used to use the seeds in breads and, and in soups and things like that. I, I think it must be quite close to what you're saying. But I've, yeah. I've been looking for inspiration as to, as to what I've harvested the seeds and then not really known where to go. Okay. So I'll try the things that you have mentioned yeah, with those ones. Sorry, you were saying about your lawn. I interrupted you with that question. Yeah, I mean... Uh, a grass lawn is something people have a relationship to, mm. but they they think of it to you know run and play football or laying down, and, and but just to sort of see that it's not uh, if if you let it grow a little bit higher than just totally flat, it's all a lot of different species there. It it can be different, but I think that's sort of the first step, and then we go a little bit into the forest and. Uh, uh, we see all the things that grow there, and uh, uh, and then I mean you 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 can take different steps in different directions, and of course wherever you are in the world, there's different parts that grow. But I think it's fun to go on a very to a normal grass lawn because you yeah. don't think that wild things grow, but of course they do. It's wild grass. Well, I think it's so actually so funny because everybody thinks well, uh, I I think there's a big. Um, part of what people think about going into the wild to get food or wild food, you know, that you have to go to some remote, remote alpine meadow or yeah. you know, deep in the forest or, you know, down on a, on a sort of wind battered coastline. And yet you just step outside and on the lawn, we yeah. find salads and herbs. And in the example you gave, even seeds that you can find as a carbohydrate source. I, did, I think it's so funny because it turns it's on its head. You're, you're, you're not going into the wild at all. You're going into this kind of domesticated environment, but it's a domesticated environment where the plants, the wild plants, are flourishing. We've created a context that, that, that can actually feed us. So I think that's pretty fun. Most people are really surprised by this, aren't they? They are. I was, uh, now when I was in, in Scotland, I think I made a lot of people to see at Rose Bay Willow Herb in a completely different way. Do you use it? Everybody in the foragers in the UK have, have, have in the last couple of years um, tapped into the fact that you can make a tea from it and lots of people are making that tea. I have, I have a big bag of it, not that I made, but that a friend made and gave to me. Yeah. Uh, and I recently said at the beginning of one of the podcasts, on our way to and from Scotland, Rose Bay Willow Herb is everywhere and is. there's a kind of potential... Rose Bay Willow Herb tea 
industry that could be happening here because there's so much of it. But tell tell me what what your um. Well, first in the springtime when they come up as shoots, they're very crispy and very delicious. Yeah. So I use them a little bit like asparagus. You know, I just 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 crisp them. What do you say? Uh, I click them off. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, and if they do like asparagus, you know that they are easy to snap. Then they are perfect of just eating or chopping into salad. Very juicy, a slight bitter aftertone, but not at all so much. And you can also just fry them. The whole the whole shoots, you can say, uh, the whole early shoots, you can fry in a little bit of butter and some some salt. It's also a delicious way to eat it. And then the flour, I make a pink, wonderful cordial from. Uh, it tastes a little bit like something in between red currant and rose. Uh, or it, it has a little herby florally taste, but it also, because you do it just the same as you do with elder, elderflower. So you need a lot of lemon, a lot of sugar, yeah. a lot of, but it becomes beautiful, uh, bright pink color. And uh, the flavor is sort of, it's not as uh, sweet as berry cordials. Uh, because it has this little bit of herbiness in it, and if you put some, uh, if you add some bubbly water to it, it becomes like a pink champagne. Okay. And okay. I, I always love to serve it because it's the best. People love it, and I love it. And it's you, you can find it everywhere. So, and also in the autumn or in the end of summer, you can, if you find thick stems of really quite. Uh, woody stems of you can um, you can split them and there's a sweet marrow inside so ah, ah. use this i've never tried right about now is a good time for that then yeah yeah i i noticed in scotland they were not as as thick as they are here in in north of sweden so maybe you'll find a little bit less marrow but uh, you have to try and so when you when you scrape that out what would you do next just, just well, it like that or it's mostly for for fun to get it. It's a little sweet uh, and a little crispy. So it's like if you have children along. Yeah, yeah. my kids will get into that. We um, I don't know if you have um, what we call cow parsley. Anthriscus sylvestris is the Latin name. Yeah, I think we do. I think we have some. Yes. Well, we found just by accident, really. But the but the flowers when they're fully out, the umbels, uh, you can lick them and they're sweet. You just lick them. So. I always do that with the kids, and then they show their friends that they go, "Oh, taste this, taste this." You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a nice little thing. Another really uh, treasure and fun thing to do with kids is to find green marzipan, and that's also in the springtime when the rowan tree. Ah, uh, yes. you, you know yes. the rowan. Uh, the the, uh, the young leaves before they fully yeah. open. Yes, yes. Before they are fully opened, uh, they should look like small. Uh, or some bird claws, almost like this. Yeah, and then you just, first it tastes green, and then it comes the almond taste, uh, and it's quite a strong taste, but it's, you you shouldn't go out. Sometimes if I've had, I, I have my, my new husband, He's uh, he has some forest, so he takes care of that, and sometimes he, he cuts down young Rowan, Rowan, uh, and bushes or young trees uh, just when they have started to come. So then I pick them and I uh, dry them for, for a good almond taste tea. Uh, and I also it's try to... Dried. I, I, it never occurred to me that that would, that would work. I somehow thought it would break down. But... A little bit. A little bit it breaks down. 
and I also try to just uh, dip them in hot water, mix them, and have and freeze it so I could use it as order uh, instead of marzipan in uh, in cookies. Uh-huh. But you know, it's the, I think it's called kumarin, um, the thing that you have in bitter almond. You 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 shouldn't eat too much of it because it's a little bit toxic, like the bitter almond is in in big amounts. So it's just a little treat that's fun to do when you're out in the springtime. So I'm just I'm just picturing your um, your guests or your people that come with you on on these walks and and just just thinking about that what what that experience is like. I mean. Um, I think what I do, which maybe not all people do, is that I bring my basket with salts, with uh, oils, with cookies or a breadstick seasoned with Labrador tea, for example, or uh, birch uh, leaf infusion and small drinks from meadowsweet and from... and dried bog bilberries, they taste like raisin. You know, I have small jars of everything. What is your, uh, I've been thinking this is quite topical because mm-hmm. yeah, but a, lot, a lot of fruit at the moment. And um, what is your method for drying them? For fruit? Yeah. Um, well, we don't really have fruit, fruit up here. We have be- berries. There are no fruit. I mean berries, yeah. 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 I mean, I love making fruit or berry leather of it. Right, yeah. Uh, because drying is such a big thing here in the north. So you just make a puree and you sweet it like you want to and you spread it out to to dry like a very thin, uh, yeah, like a thin big tray or something like that. Uh, and, and when you dry it in low temperature, it's very easy to just cut in ribbons. Yeah. And it's so concentrated with flavors and... Uh, tastes and I usually sweeten it with a little bit of brown sugar or honey Uh, but if you don't want to sweeten them at all you can do that but some of the berries here are quite sour so it's nice to have add a little bit of sweetness but even like a very ripe banana is nice to sweeten Mm -hmm. with and 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 then I don't need to I don't need to to make jams or to keep it in the fridge I can just have it in a little tin and it will last for for a year at least yeah, I mean, I, that's so. I'm I'm always thinking what what we could do um, with some of the more abundant harvests and you know berries. Yeah. Is obviously every year we have we have a lot. And as you say, the the obvious thing is jam. That's what most people do. Uh, but I'm trying to think of other things. Yeah. But, but but with a reference point, having been doing a little bit of reading on um, you know indigenous traditions around this, especially like the the uh, Canadian tribal peoples. Something they did, they did was was dry it and mix it with fat, which is so completely yeah. another thing to do, so different from what we do. But they, they would have these uh, these these stores of, of dried berries mixed with yeah. fat. Yeah, um, I mean here the Sami they have mixed berries with reindeer milk, uh, okay. and uh, sort of uh, um, it sort of preserves both the milk and the berry so they it has almost become like a cheese or like a cottage cheese thing where where both um, uh, the berry gets preserved uh, and and the milk and sometimes they have reindeer milk Mm -hmm. i mean they don't anymore because i did it people milked reindeers 
I mean, usually they did that because they lived in smaller groups with quite tame reindeer. Um, and it's very high in protein and very high in fat, but it's not a big amount. Uh, but they made cheeses from them, fresh cheeses, and they also sort of mixed them with angelica leaves is another recipe, uh, or with um, sorrel also. Uh, so it was sort of a way to make almost like kind of a herb kind of cheese from it um that could be almost freeze dried also so because in the winter it's so dry and cold so a lot of the moist just disappears and it gets almost like a frozen uh powder of it almost i seem to think there's a recipe for for birch leaves isn't there that involves um a kind of fresh cheese type thing that you you um you cook those birch leaves and then you mix them in with Sour milk and it, I think they okay. were. Does that sound familiar? Uh, no, not in. It's in the book of your teacher that that my friends had. Ah, okay. But I think I think that I mean she she taught us to do that with Angelica and okay. uh, and with the sorrel. Uh, and maybe birch was something that she ex experimented with, but it's nothing that I have heard heard about. I mean, birch birch leaves you could preserve. Uh, you could stuff stuff in the fish stomach to sort of make the fish be preserved for a longer time. And a lot of people just ate it, of course, like they are. Um, and I love to do drinks with it, just very cold. You just put it in cold water and it becomes very nice, like a cold tea, but less bitter. Yeah. And, um, That's the fresh leaves, just, just, in, just in water. Okay. Yeah, and, and if if you don't take hot water, it will become another taste. We have silver tea and we have uh, downy, no, silver birch and downy birch. And yep. the silver birch has sort of come from the south and the downy birch has come from the north and east. And there's quite different flavors of the leaves. Oh, fascinating. So if I put uh, downy birch leaves, young ones, in water, it becomes a very strong birchy flavor, very beautiful. If I put the silver birch leaves in cold water it just tastes a little bit of chlorophyll of green there's almost no so i usually say for salads you don't want that uh, quite a bitter taste so then silver birch leaves are perfect but yeah. if you want the birch flavor which is a very fresh but also a little bitter taste then which i use when i make herbal salts and um, um yeah, or, or, or my drinks, then I prefer the, the downy birch. Yeah, yeah. I started to sort of separate foraging. I think we get down into the detail, it, it turns out <laughs> yeah, things are not all the yeah. same. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'm, I love to hear about that because, again, the birch is such a, uh, well, any tree with so many leaves, if there's a use for those leaves, then all of a sudden you've got a lot of stuff you could be using. So I'm, I'm always interested to know what, what we can do with this uh, Mm. Maybe we didn't know before. But going back to your um, the experience that you're giving people when you when you take them out, I just I just love all of the different aspects, you know. And and I I did listen to a little video that you put on your website where you were uh, um, explaining the 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 name of your company is Essence, isn't it? Yes. So and you were <laughs> about the senses. Could you could you could you talk about that? Like what what, what your um what your thing is regarding 
Yeah. Experience of the senses with these, these what you do. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, when I choose my, my company name, Essence of Lapland, uh, it felt so wrong to spell it with, with C, the regular way. It, it, didn't, it didn't look good for me. So I, I, I started to, to uh, write Essence with S-E in the end, mm -hmm. uh, probably because it then involves the name of sense. And I think the sense, because when I went to this school for a whole year, I mean, I had such a revelation in me. I, 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 my son was a teenager uh, and uh, I had had office work before. And, you know, with all the senses that, that we used in school, you know, the smell, the taste, uh, and just the hands, to just use the hands in everything you make. Um, and then also listening to all the, the traditions and also sort of being asked to experiment. It was so revitalizing for me. So I had double heartbeat for a year <laughs> and I had so much energy. And my husband, my ex-husband, he thought I was impossible. And I just felt like I need to go this way. I, I can't take these feelings away. Uh, so uh, I thought the power of using your senses is so... Uh, Nice, and that's why I also involve singing, because I love to sing. It all started with, uh, they wanted me at the local Sami Museum to make a Sami dinner after I had went to this school. But as I am not Sami in, in origin, it would, even if I had gone this whole year in the Sami school, it would have felt wrong to make a Sami dinner. Uh, so I said, well, I, I make some activity after <laughs> after the dinner. So that's when I sort of started to make a lot of really good, nice taste, which had all had, had a story and all had a song. So, uh, and that became such a success because I think what you do is that you uh, give people the opportunity to experience nature with all their senses, you know, what they hear, what they feel, what they taste, what they get to know. And especially in the, the knowledge, I, I really like to sort of uh, give people explanations or my kind of explanations about, about uh, traditions and why are they named like that. Like, like here in Sweden, Meadowsweet is called Elgres, which means moose herb, and the moose don't like it. Uh, but in Norway, it's called mjödut, which is mead herb, because it has been used making mead and well, also making beer. That's the name for it here. Meadowsweet yeah. is a corruption. The, the, the original name is mead. It's mead sweet, and somebody just wrote it down wrong, and ever since we've called it meadowsweet. So prob probably in Sweden, the name would have been ölut, which is beer herb. And Earl and Ellie is quite similar. So it's okay. sort of been the wrong way. Um, and I can't find that information anywhere, but that's my inf information. That's my puzzle. So, and I just say that I am right. <laughs> well, I don't need to be right, but I think it's nice for people to, to start, yeah, getting to know the plant. 
Yeah. And getting to know that there are salicyl uh, acid, you say that? Salicylic acid, yeah. yeah. yeah and and uh, the old Latin name was spirea, which is uh, the name aspirin comes from, from yeah. this plant. So yeah. Yeah. it sort of all adds up to logic. Yeah, you want people to have the right story about the plant, and I think that's 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 the that's the reason for giving the correct explanation about the name because yeah, yeah. you want a name that doesn't make sense. Oh, no. and and that together with taste, maybe a little bit of um, sweet uh, liquor from the meadowsweet, which tastes like uh, amaretto uh, <laughs> or the just cordial, or to to. Um, um and and to listen to a song that has to go with this plant i mean it all ends up to very yeah special well i have to say i i i don't think it would be right to to talk about this without without hearing you sing something <laughs> okay can, can we hear so i mean i'm assuming it's in swedish so we'll need a translation but um yeah i i i can um uh... Well, one of the songs is about roses and lilies, but it's also about uh, wanting to grow old together. And that's sort of my relationship with this area, with the nature. So uh, it's an old Swedish folk song. So it's sort of the text is, my rose, my lily, I want to live all my days with you. And then the next verse is, my rose, my lily, I have, when I'm grey, when I'm old and grey, I have lived all my lives together with you. Min ros, min lilja, jag skulle vilja dela alla livets dagar med dig. Min ros, min lilja, jag skulle vilja dela alla livets dagar med dig. När grå jag har blivit, då har jag givit alla mina levnadsdagar till dig. När grå jag har blivit, då har jag givit alla mina levnadsdagar till dig. Så... That's so wonderful, and I I feel like this picture is becoming more and more clear of what what it is that you're doing when you take these people out there. I I think I think it's like you have this as you described this best relationship of all, which is your friendship, your love affair, as it were, with 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 the forest and the land and so on. And you're going out there, and it's like you're introducing people. So yeah. also can have this love affair with with, with your surroundings. I, I love it. That that's a love song. And you don't need to be an expert in everything, but as long as you are having fun, exploring, and want to share, uh, share what you get with people, I think that's that's my whole point. I'm 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 originally from Stockholm. I'm a city girl, but not in heart, <laughs> and. Uh, that has come to the north and being part of the Sami culture. And I'm sort of still on a journey in this landscape uh, for the traditions, the the history, um, the nature. I mean, if you just stay on one place, you can, you can get so much knowledge every year you hear something new and you explore something new. And uh, I, I, I love it here. I want to explore it another 30 years. 
Well, I mean, I think I think the you know the difference between an expert and and what you're describing is that the heart of it is that kind of relationship. You know, when when you're an expert, you have a lot of information, but you don't necessarily have um, that kind of emotional dimension to what you're doing. And I actually think whilst the information is really important because there's a lot of good food out there and there's ways to cook, there's ways to gather, all of that, that, that isn't the heart of what I feel um, people need. I think the heart of what people need is to, is, is to get back to land and, and, and to feel that connection and, and that participation. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, the, the information is all about the things you learn because you know, like if you know somebody, you could you could you could say a lot of things. Oh, you know, I know her. She she works here. She does that. She really likes this. She doesn't like that. You know, you'd know some facts if you knew somebody. But the, the, the important thing is that you actually know that person and, and the meaning that they they give to your life. And 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 uh, I just like to explore this thing around the senses a bit. Because, um, mm -hmm. I'm. Um, I'm reading an amazing book at the moment, which I, th I think you'd love if you haven't already read it. It's called it's called the Spell of the, the Sensory. I think it's called that. Anyway, we'll put a link. I think David Abraham is the name of the author, but he's basically saying that that in in the past uh, we had this total link with our surroundings because we lived in our senses, and uh, the theory he's got in the book is that we actually started getting split off, not just through agriculture, but through the invention of uh, of written language. You know that suddenly we live in this this dimension of uh, the thing that's that's not here. You know we can read in this book about what's not here. We can we can we can hear the voice of a person who's not here. Whereas before that it was all oral culture, but everything was transmitted through a human voice telling a story. Uh, that, that that's the kind of work that we're beginning to see happen when we take somebody out in the forest and tell them these stories. It's a kind of a a re-beginning again of, of, of an oral culture. This is, this is a way that we come to know the world through somebody telling stories in, 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 in that space, you know, in that, in that wild space. So true, because you need, uh, uh, you need a soul or a heart <laughs> and not just words. Um, and the, the Sami people, they have a special kind of well, you could say it's song, but they call it yoik, which is sort of to find the essence of, uh, or or the, uh, not maybe always the essence, but to find the soul of someone or something. Uh, and it's sort of a tune or a couple of noises that sums up uh, what this person or animal or mountain is. Wow. And uh, and you you can you can sort of get it from when when you're inspired uh, or when you are in the right mood. So like the in some parts of Sam it's in Sam it's for, so always like the grandparents give their grandchildren their own yoik, but it doesn't happen until they maybe are five six years because they need to get the personality and then they need to sort of capture the tones from the air um, and and I think that all living things even I mean stones and places and um, herbs and trees and people we all have our special tune uh, shouldn't that be our name somehow yeah yeah I think it is it's sort of if if you have the name and then you have the yoik, then you have sort of a a bigger part of 
what what's it all about and um, I usually say that that people who, who who make these yorks or even I if I have found one sometimes it's it's not something you can learn it's something you need to you need to be out in the air and you need to be surrounded by it and you need to be quiet and we are very much not quiet so i i always love to forage i never have music in my ears or something like that i want to be totally there and feel the mosquitoes coming in or listen to the river and and the birds and uh, and uh, yeah you need to sort of feel the scratches maybe from the uh, from the thorns but it's a part of the experience and then you sort of you get into the mood of foraging and uh, and it's a really is i think i think things happen to you when you do that i mean i told you when i was in school and i had this double heartbeat that summer i was out foraging the whole summer for the first time you know that i really foraged a lot and i think that saved me because i was all in my head all in my head and i was didn't know what to do with it but somehow being out uh, just filling my baskets and uh, being totally quiet that's sort of how i got my energy back in 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 my whole body and grounded again of course you can say but i think that's a, you don't need to forage bags and bags but just being out a little now and then and do this it's it's so good for you and uh, we need to reconnect in that state i think which everybody everybody would have done and that's that's got to be a problem you know if we yeah. if if, if to be a human or really just to be an animal, there is no animal that doesn't do this. There is no animal that doesn't put its feet on the ground and peck or bite or pick something up to eat that comes from this place and therefore have that as a absolutely constant mode of engagement. And then we do it never. Somehow we're going to be all right. It doesn't, we can't be all right no. if we do this never. And, and and now there's a few people that are getting back to doing that, and 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 um, and I keep wanting to tell people, look, you know, this is not unusual. You may think this is unusual that a person knows all the plants and eats them. Wow, that's amazing. That's really interesting. It's, it's interesting. It's not amazing. It's normal. It's, it's true. Unbelievably, absolutely, utterly ordinary. Because every other living thing, and people used to you know always do this all the yes. time everywhere so well we are on a mission aren't we i believe we are <laughs> well it's really good it's really good to uh, compare notes with regard to that mission eva um wherever we are in the world and um yeah and i think the things that you need automatically grows around you uh i mean even if it's not the same, the things that you need, you will find out there. Uh, of course, we need to get to know about them, but uh, it's it's not complicated. And I usually say the things that I pick, they, they grow where they want to grow. They get the minerals from the ground. Uh, they are not done something with people. There's no sort of things put in the ground or not nothing splashed on them to grow better or faster it's they're just perfect as they are and and i think as soon as people or man starts to 
do things with plants and do things, you somehow destroy uh, the outcome of it. So the best thing and the most natural thing are just there for us to to uh, forage. Well, you know, there's a thing. There's a thing that we have this this kind of intelligence and creative capacity, you know. And but the weird thing is, we think we're a genius when we innovate in a way that creates massive change in the world. You know, I think we're just about to. Um, you know, and I, I have been thinking about this a lot to do with that's 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 quite the. I don't know if you'd agree with this gender stereotyping, but I think that's quite a masculine thing to do. You know, the guy has a big idea and he's going, "I'm going to go and do this and make this happen." You know, that seems to me to be quite a masculine thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, whereas the, the the feminine is is more again stereotypically, but like is to, is to is to look for the relation and the and the being with what is. You know. Um, it's, I have a new see. I'm a bloke, an idea, yeah. Um, for what would be a genius, you know, it would be to work with this unbelievable thing which has already developed over billions, not millions, of years. This amazing system called life on Earth, you know, that's a genius <laughs> to say, hey, let's not let's not mess around with this. Let's actually let's actually work okay. with this. That's that's genius, you know. I think I think that that's the genius idea that is the one for this century. Yeah, I mean, we have we have, for example, the pine. We have a lot of pine trees around, um, and we uh, we grow them and we cut them and we make paper of them or sell them as timber. Um, and also in this area, we have a very old tradition of uh, taking the inner bark from the pine. Mm-hmm. That has disappeared totally. I mean, all Arctic people has eaten inner bark from di- different trees as part of their um, base food. Right. And uh, right. new scientists, they can say that about 50 kilos per family were uh, gathered per year, which is quite a lot because they don't they don't uh, weigh so much. Um, but the Sami people, they sort of took away a part of the outer bark in the springtime in May or and June also uh, but not all of it of course because then the tree will die and then because the tree was uh, drinking the sap it was quite easy to just pull off the inner bark and because it's that time of year it's also that is sort of the membrane where all the minerals and nourishment from the ground goes through so it's filled with that and new science can say that uh, if if you take the bark, the inner bark in that kind of year, it's more nutritious for us than today's wheat and, you know, grain. Uh, the, the farmers knew that they could use inner bark, but they didn't knew, know about the timing. So they used it as um, food if they were starving if the crops went wrong. So they, in the wintertime or early spring, they just cut out a tree and took the bark. And then it's just something to fill your belly with. It's no nutrition at all, almost. So uh, the, the knowledge was sort of gone because there's nothing written about that. And now they're sort of redeveloping the part of it. And uh, it's still very, very young. But I think if you cut down trees... Uh, in May here in in the north, you see how all the inner bark is just it's laying there in the packs of trees, and the inner bark is just going away somewhere. And if we could if we could sort of 
use a technique that we could take care of that. Uh, I mean, the Sami, they went back to the same tree 15 years later and could forage new inner bark from the same tree. So they, it was really harvested, but it was a long-term harvest. Um, but I think if we could use the trees or the plants instead of just, it, it's like taking the filet out of a cow or a, a reindeer and throw everything else away. I mean, if we can use the, the shoots from it, the, um, the needles, the roots, the bark, I mean, suddenly we have something that is nutritious for us, is good for us, uh, and it's not just for making toilet paper, you know. And of course the pine course, pollen as well, is that, is that something people are working with? Pine pollen. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it... I've heard about it, but I, I I haven't heard that it's a tradition to do. Um, the pine shoots people have been eating, uh, so I usually make herbal salts and oils from from them and so on. But but pollen I haven't heard that being a tradition in this area. But it could have been. You know, there's so many things that has been forgotten about. Well, again, the new science is is showing up in incredible uh, benefits to to pine pollen, which I, I must admit I haven't quite got it down but I, I i think it's an adaptogen and i think it's quite similar chemically to testosterone and oh. it just it does all sorts of beneficial things to the, the human body and it may be that the reason the sami didn't do anything with it is because they didn't need to because it's in the air the thinking is that we have co-evolved with pine because we breathe it in so these these <laughs> beneficial effects would have come because it's 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 everywhere in the air you know it's blown around the planet it's everywhere in the air but if you live in a region where there's lots of pine, you probably wouldn't need to do anything with it because every year you are breathing in enough to, to have those beneficial effects. It's, it's yellow all over the deck and everywhere during the pollen season from the pine. Mm. But, but as a product, which for people that don't live surrounded by pine, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing harvest that in the areas of the world where there's, there's, um, there's a lot of pine, that, that, that could be gathered and sent out to where where people need it more um yeah i mean we we need to redistribute you know some somehow i think that first of all should people be more uh, recognizable of what your own plants are like for example we have a lot of lingonberries uh, blueberries and and or bilberries as they are and most of it is sort of picked and shipped away to china because we don't and then we buy cranberry juice in the and and just to so because uh, I think it has a culture, of course, because uh, picking and foraging your own thing was looked at as something you did if you were poor. Yeah. You didn't have money to buy other things. So it was a big, uh, you need to change your mind that the most valuable things today we find outside our doorstep we don't need to buy something manufactured in the other side of the world we have what we need we have and they are great but we need to sort of change the minds because for a couple of generations they have sort of screwed the mind with yeah. what's good for us or not well that's true all the thing like they told us for years that fat was bad and carbs were good and all this crazy stuff but but, but i think it's very interesting you you sort of singling out the scenario there that we we we, we, we're gonna we're gonna buy things in when we've got what we need where we are and I, I think I think this is another issue uh, which I've been thinking about a lot lately and that's how money money is like a knife that cuts your connection 
yeah. Because when you don't have money, you have to look at what you have here without money. And all of a sudden, because you're looking for what you have here, that's, that opens it. It's like a door is open now because you are asking yourself, what do I have here? And you begin to engage and get to know that place. So, Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, that uh, as soon as it comes to also in industry making, if I mean, you have I, I, I don't really like the idea of big industries because then it usually gets wrong. Uh, they are looking at how can we harvest wild things in a big industry, but then they want to make as much money as possible. Well, and then driven by money, it's going to be like that. Yeah. Maybe, so, maybe, maybe there's something about doing things on a large scale where it's collaborative, cooperative and with reference to the ecology to be most beneficial. Maybe we could do some big harvests of pine pollen, for example. Exactly. Network with small companies who, who, who are joined together when needed or separated when they're needed. I think that's the most um, valuable thing. I mean, to have collaborations with other small uh, groups. And uh, it's, I think that's the few, few future. Take away all the big <laughs> It shouldn't be allowed to have a big industry because they just do, good, do evil things. <laughs> they say behind every great fortune there's a great crime, don't they? I, I don't know if there's an exception to that. Any uh, super rich people out there that want to tell us about the lovely, benign, wonderful, life-giving things they've done in order to get that great big pile of cash? I, okay. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's possible. But for now, I think... Um, yeah, the small scale thing is where the where the love is happening. I think. Yeah. And I think I meet a lot of tourists, not a lot of them, but somehow, and they are traveling around the world, which is lovely. But I think all of them have a little bit of mindset. You know, I live in a small house, uh, and I don't own a lot of things, but I am so happy because I own my time, and I have connection with nature. And I think everybody that leaves my house or leaves my 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 tour feels that will have a little bit of question: Am I doing the right thing in my life? So uh, I I don't think everybody can do what I do, but I think one of the keys is not to uh, try to own, to yeah use too much money. I mean, I don't need a caravan. I don't need a summer house. I have, I don't need too many things. I need a little house or place to stay, and I need to have time being outdoors, gathering things, and then I have a little bit what I need. Well, I think it's just a different definition of of, of wealth and prosperity, isn't it? It's it's like that. This is wealth and prosperity. If you. I think I have found the key to happiness. <laughs> and I've been working as a project leader, as a hotel manager. I have been working a lot with tourism. Uh, I love working with people, and, but I feel now when I do what I want to do, um, everything comes together. And, uh, and I think, of course, you need to work. You need to find work where you can, where you can do good Mm. Uh, but I think everybody should feel a little, yeah, have a thought that am I am I doing good? Am I taking care of myself? Am, am I taking care of other people? And uh, am I taking care of the planet? You don't need to solve the whole planet, but I think I do something here in my part of the world that benefits some people, and I'm I'm happy with that. Deep thoughts. <laughs> Deep thoughts. Nobody listens to this podcast if they want to idle chitter chatter. I can tell you that. So. <laughs> Well, it's such a joy to have you. Another little spotlight on somewhere else in the world where 
wild things are happening. And if you come to Jokmoki in the heart of Swedish Lapland, you're just welcome to, to give me a call. Thank you for joining us for this week's Worldwide podcast. And if you're someone that would like to get more involved in your local ecosystem in the ways that we're talking about here and just engage with that rebonding process through the medium of learning your local edible wild plants and mushrooms and so on. Um, there's actually a wonderful resource, which, which I have mentioned before, but it's the Association of Foragers website. And what you'll find there is a database of foraging teachers. Most of them are based within um, the British Isles, but there are some um, in other parts of the world. So it's really well worth your while having a look there and seeing if there's a teacher near you and um, engaging, engaging with that um, opportunity to learn the wild plants where you are. So that's it for this week's World Wild Podcast. <laughs>